You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Diana. Well, next Sunday marks 10 years since Julia Gillard's famous misogyny speech. It was a remarkable moment in Australian politics Gillard was, of course, Prime Minister at the time, Australia's first female Prime Minister, but her government was struggling. They lacked a majority across the two houses, uh, riven by division. Gillard, in fact, had uh, taken over from Kevin Rudd, and they were up against a coalition led by Tony Abbott that was eager to exploit every fault line. Uh, Gillard was herself subjected to some very personal attacks during this time. She was described by politicians and by the larger community as Lady Macbeth. There were calls to ditch the witch and other even more unsavoury terms. Her appearance was constantly commented on normally in very negative terms. And the breaking point came for her when Abbott accused her of sexism. She told, she stood up in Parliament and said very famously that she refused to be lectured to about sexism and misogyny by that man. And she famously also said that if Abbott wanted to see what misogyny looked like, he just had to look in the mirror. It was really quite a remarkable moment in history, which both told us how far Australia had come and how far there was still to go. Here you have this moment where we have the first Australian female prime minister who's attained the the highest office in the land, has the most authority and power of any other role in Australia, and yet she is also being undercut and undermined because of her gender. It sort of showed how far things had developed, but how much more was to come. And it highlighted for us the question of gender equality. What does it look like for men and women to relate together in society, in the home, in the church, all of these different environments that we're in, What is the vision that we should have? What is possible and what should we be pursuing as God's people? That's what we're going to think about today. And I want to start, first of all, with God's vision for gender. I think we see it in our Bible reading today, verse 27 in particular. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. There's a number of important things that we see here. First of all, we see that as humans, we are made. We are created by God. That means that a great and mighty and powerful God is also a personal God. He knows us. He put us together. Psalm 139, he handcrafted us. 
And he also knows what's best for us. He designed us. He, he's wired us up in certain ways. He's made us deliberately. So, so we are made. That's the first thing we need to see. And then secondly, we are made in his image. We're made like God. We're made in the spitting image of God, so to speak. We're, we're made in his likeness to resemble him and to show his character to the world around us. And as we've seen throughout this series, it's that thing, that being made in God's image, that gives us dignity and value. Each human has this, this inherent dignity and value because we are made in God's image. And this is something that we share, men and women alike, because thirdly, we are made in his image, male and female. That shows us that gender is part of God's plan. When God made humans, he decided to make two types of humans, males and females, and this is part of his design. And that means that there is an intrinsic significance in being a man or a woman. Gender tells us something about God. Masculinity shows us something about who God is, and and so does femininity. So Genesis 1 tells us that God made us, God made us in his image, and God made us in his image, male and female. And then as we keep reading through Genesis, in Genesis 2, we we start to see the relationship between men and women. And we see three things. There is a a sameness, a difference, and a complementarity. I think you you see this when Eve is made. In Genesis 2, we discover that, that Adam was made before Eve, and so he is alone. And we're told in verse 18 that this is not good. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is quite striking because up till now, everything that God has been making has been described as good. He makes the earth and the seas and he saw it and it was good. He makes the plants and the trees and God saw that it was good and and so on. It was good. It was good until right at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, he looks at everything that he has made and it is all very good. But then suddenly here in the middle of chapter 2, there's something that is not good. It is not good, not complete. His creation is not perfect until there is a woman to go alongside the man. The man needs a helper, someone fit for him. Hang on a minute. This word helper, that doesn't sound like a word of of great value or dignity, does it? Sort of suggests that the woman is just created to, to work for the man or something like that. Doesn't that undermine what we've been saying so far? Well, let's unpack this. First of all, it's important to note that the Hebrew word here is the word ezer. It's used 19 times in the Old Testament and 15 of those times it's used to describe God himself. Take, for instance, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so far from demeaning the woman, this is actually a way of uh, highlighting her goodness, her greatness, her impressiveness. Ray Ortland Jr. says, the fact that the Old Testament portrays God as our helper proves that the helper's role is a glorious one, worthy even of the Almighty. And so uh, this is a position of dignity. It's a position where uh, the woman brings her strength to complete something with the man. Adam recognises it as soon as he sees her. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I love this moment. I want you to see something here. Adam is in awe of Eve. And do you see what he appreciates about her? First of all, he appreciates her sameness. 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's just like me. But secondly, he loves that she is different. He is a man and she is a woman. The writer Preston Sprinkle points out that the word suitable helper here is from the Hebrew word kenegigo, which is a conjunction of two Hebrews words that means like and opposite. So here he sees what is the same and different. That's what he celebrates. He can see that they fit together because they are different, but they also work. In a word, they complement each other. Andrew Wilson writes, complementarity is a relationship or a situation in which two or more different things improve or emphasise each other's qualities. And so he says, here there is a fit, a mutual enhancement, a beautiful difference at the heart of what God has made. So it's a beautiful picture. God made us. God made us in his image. God made us in his image, male and female, and we belong together. We're the same, but we're different. We complement each other, not just in marriage, but in life, in society. We are equal in value and have a role to play, all of us together, men and women. So what's gone wrong? You see, the beauty of this picture is matched only by the tragedy of its loss. See, we were made to be equal, made to work together, but all around us we see division and inequality and even abuse between the sexes. And in fact, we see this as soon as sin enters the world. In Genesis 3, we see the first humans turn against God, and as soon as they do that, as they do that, they turn against each other as well. There's this extraordinary change where uh, when they were, before the fall, when they were perfect, they were told that they were naked and felt no shame. They were completely comfortable around each other. They could be completely vulnerable emotionally and physically, all of these things, because they could trust the other person implicitly. But as soon as they sin, as soon as they fall into sin, the first thing that they do is cover themselves up. They no longer feel safe around each other. And we can see why as God comes to confront them. God goes to Adam and says, what have you done? And he says, it was the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree. It's her fault. Just a moment ago, he's singing her praises. He's he's so excited that Eve is in his life and now he doesn't even deign to use her name. And then as we read on, we see that this will become a pattern. God tells Adam and Eve that there will be consequences for their sin. And to the woman, he says in chapter 3, 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's going to be conflict between you. You're going to have competing desires and struggle. And this is what we see, don't we? Because let's consider our experience of inequality. Throughout our world, we see all kinds of inequality between men and women, conflict. It is important to note here that there are some ways in which men feel this conflict themselves, inequalities. Take, for instance, society's attitude towards men's health. Around one in 41 men will die of prostate cancer. One in 39 women will die of breast cancer. And yet we don't hardly ever hear about prostate cancer, something like four times the amount of funding is given to breast cancer. Uh, Men also are consistently exposed to danger more than women. Men are 10 times as likely to die at work. I think I heard a stat today that 70% of murder victims are men. 
or consider education levels. Boys are two times as likely to struggle with literacy to the age of 15. So there are significant ways in which men do feel undervalued or overlooked. And yet I think we should all be able to see that the, the primary way, the, the way that inequality is most often expressed is it's experienced mainly for women. Globally, uh, women experience this in, in horrific ways. In 18 countries, husbands can legally prevent their wives from working. In 49 countries, they, they lack laws protecting women from domestic violence. Now, in a Western democracy like our own, the situation is much better, but there are still profound issues. According to the 2022 Global Gender Gap Report, Australia is ranked 43 out of 147 countries when it comes to gender equality. And it's felt in lots of ways and in different environments. Often it's felt in the workforce with the pay gap. There are laws that ensure that men and women are paid the same amount for the same work. And yet when you look across the whole of the workforce, it ends up that women make something like 14% less money than men. And there's some practical reasons for this. Uh, if a woman leaves the workforce to have a baby, for instance, uh, the man will continue on in their career and gain experience and then uh, access to, to more uh, higher wages and so on. That makes some sense. But there are broader issues here. Uh, women are much less likely to rise to management positions. And so, for instance, in the education sector, even though 70% of the workers uh, are women, only, uh, women only make up 53% of management positions. It's also been found that women, when women do have executive roles in the business world, they may be paid on average $100,000 less than men doing similar jobs. It's also striking that uh, parts of the workforce where women dominate often seem to be less well paid than others. So there's a lot of women in teaching, for instance, healthcare, aged care, childcare, and those kinds of jobs are frequently underfunded with fewer opportunities for development and training. 91% of childcare workers, for instance, are, are women, and yet that industry receives just uh, a, a minimum wage almost of $24 an hour. It's just above the minimum wage. And then, of course, within the workplace, women often experience a lot of inequality. Sometimes they're just not considered. There were no female bathrooms at Parliament House until 1974. That's a full 31 years after the first female politician. Uh, other times, women are, often, are made to feel uncomfortable. Uh, one, heart, one in two women will experience sexual harassment, and often that is within uh, the workplace. And damningly, this is the case even among the nation's lawmakers. Former Liberal MP Julia Banks has said that Parliament House has the most unsafe workplace culture in Australia. I think what's most troubling, though, is how unequal women feel in terms of their physical safety. Uh, September 22 marked 10 years since Jill Meagher was brutally killed in a Brunswick alleyway after a night out with friends. And there was something about her story that really struck home for lots of people just how vulnerable women can feel in our society. Uh, writing in The Age, the journalist Emily Day says, when she was found dead, the outpouring of grief was very real. We all thought it could have been me or my sister or my friend or someone I know because in Jill we could see ourselves, a bright, happy, ordinary person, enjoying a night out with colleagues just trying to get home safely. 
I remember talking to my wife after that one or, and after uh, the death of Eurydice Dixon a few years ago and, and just being having a real deep sense of the realities of life for women in our culture, in our city. You know, having to take precautions when you're out alone, packing something heavy in your handbag or strategizing your route home to the car or to the train station. Like that's just not something that I as a bloke have to think about. It's just not in my frame of reference really. And yet if you're a woman here, I can imagine that it is. So there is a genuine difference and inequality of experience of safety here. Of course that's horrific, but what's even more tragic is the sense that women often don't feel safe in their own homes. One in four women will, have, will be in an, uh, in an emotionally abusive relationship. Uh, on average, one woman a week is killed by an intimate partner. And despite this, women don't feel adequately protected by the law. There's loopholes, allowances, there's limp penalties, there's interventions that are too little, too late. And all of this leaves women feeling unequal, less valuable than men. As Annabelle Crabb put it, if a man got killed by a shark every week, we'd probably arrange for the ocean to be drained. You know, but because it's not happening to men, we don't seem to take the same level of care. That's how people feel. And this is a disturbing picture that we've strayed so far from God's vision for the value of humanity, the value of both men and women, that women feel undervalued, underrepresented, uncared for, unsafe, unequal. So what do we do about it? What's the solution? Let's consider that. Well, firstly, obviously, we men need to do something about this. It's not right that women feel so unsafe. I think that God has given men great power and strength physically in different ways. But what I notice looking at myself and the men in the world around me, we're tempted to do either one of two things with it. Either we abuse that power or we abrogate and do nothing with it. We either hurt people with the power that we have or we're tempted to do nothing at all with it. And either way, we leave others feeling vulnerable around us, vulnerable to us or vulnerable to others. God gives strength to men and he's disgusted by any man who would turn it against others or do nothing with it. Al Stewart is a Christian leader in New South Wales. He's just published a book called The Manual, basically about Christian masculinity. And he writes, healthy masculinity is a willingness to take responsibility and use the power you have to care for and nurture those around you. So men, we have that responsibility. We have the responsibility to look after the women in our world, to help, assist and honour to make sure that they always feel safe. But more than that, it's more than that. It's lifting them up to make sure that they feel that they are able to truly express themselves, to be as they are, to honour God, God's creation. Men and women are made in God's image. 
women have this opportunity, this role to display God's glory with their femininity. And as men, we have to ensure that we are helping them to do that. Really, we have to ensure that women are treated equally. And of course, that's really the motivation behind feminism. Feminism is that attempt to ensure that both men and women are treated equally, politically, economically, culturally, socially. That's how it was framed from the very beginning. The Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, the first women's rights convention, declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. This led to the first wave of feminism around the turn of the 20th century, the start of the 20th century, uh, particularly around women getting the vote. So in Australia, women have had the vote since uh, 1902 in federal elections. And actually, South Australia was the very first jurisdiction in the whole world to give women the vote in 1894. So there's a good heritage there. And our current federal parliament has the most female representatives ever. Women make up 38% of members in the House of Representatives and 57% of senators. And I think it's important for us to recognise just how big this is and to celebrate that. We kind of just are completely used to the fact that women have the vote because that's all we've known. But it's actually really only just over 100 years old. And before then, a woman had a secondary place in society, seen as a kind of adjunct to her husband, and even harder for an unmarried woman. But in voting, women are finally given a voice, a say, an opportunity to shape the society in which they live in. Further developments came with the second wave of feminism in the 60s and 70s, which sought economic and social equality for women, and such as equal pay for work of equal value and so on. And there have been other great things that have come through this. But also as I reflect on this, I think there are other fruits of the feminist movement that I'm not so sure about. See, it's important to remind ourselves of how God has made us. He's made us male and female, the same but different and complementary, working together to do the task that God has given us all. But sometimes I think we lose sight of some of those things. We don't hold them all together properly. Often our solutions to the problem of inequality either overemphasise our sameness or our difference and that ends up undermining our complementarity. Let me explain. Sometimes we, we overemphasize our sameness. God made us both similar as, as humans, but sometimes in the world it's seen as the only way to equality is uniformity, that women must do all of the things that men can do all of the time as if we are indistinct and interchangeable. And often you'll see a, a kind of pressure on women to be just the same as men. Sometimes that pressure comes from men, the expectation that a, that a woman has to uh, have the same personality as a man, that they should be as ruthless in their workforce or something like that, or able to take a joke. She has to be one of the guys. Sometimes that pressure comes from men. But sometimes it also comes from women. So there's a pressure on some women to they have to just keep working. If they want to have babies, that, that's almost a, an inconvenience and they need to get back to the workforce as soon as they can, even if they might prefer to stay at home. And all of this is, is kind of trying to make genders the same. 
But what if our differences are the things that we should be celebrating and enjoying? See, God has made us men and women. Gender is part of his plan. He's deliberately made us different. So yes, we are the same in value, but we're supposed to express our difference. Equality brings with it the chance to do that. Sharon James, the writer, suggests that we've confused differentiation with discrimination. We've come to assume that any talk of difference is to imply inferiority. That's not how God has designed things. Yes, God wants to liberate women from oppression and unjust constraints, but not from womanhood itself. Elizabeth Elliot was a wonderful Christian woman, a missionary and mother and a writer, who wrote a book called Let Me Be a Woman. And, and the title itself is so significant. At times she feels like she's inhabiting a world that's denouncing her identity and she's saying, no, 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 let me be a woman. Let me be who God has created me to be. She says equal opportunity nearly always implies that women want to do what men do, not that men want to do what women do, which indicates that prestige is attached to men's work but not to women's. This is a distortion of the truth and an attempt to judge women by the criteria of men to force them into an alien mould, to rob them of the very gifts that make them what they were meant to be. So we have to be careful not to overemphasise our sameness. And yet we also have to be careful not to overemphasise our difference. I think you see this when the genders stand apart from each other in narrow stereotypes Perhaps when men stand apart and dismiss women. I was fascinated. There's the Athenaeum Club is a private men's club in the city uh, and they recently had this big vote over whether they should consider having females uh, visit the club and so on uh, and it was voted down. And fascinatingly, the people who voted it down were the youngest members of the group, of the club. And so there's this kind of sense that, uh, men want to stand off from women. Now, of course, it's okay to have spaces where times where we're just hanging out as guys and girls hanging out as girls. Well, that's okay. But this kind of idea that there has to be this complete separation so often is dangerous. And then I also think you find this with men when there's kind of this caricature development of a masculinity. I remember going to a church men's conference and in the middle of the auditorium, like this is a big indoor auditorium, and they got some Harley Davidsons to dr drive through the, the auditorium, basically, to ride through. And it's kind of saying, this is what you're supposed to be like, men. Or another conference where they had like a, a, a UFC octagon in, on the stage. Someone was telling me about this. It's like, this is what you're supposed to be, men. You just have to be tough and violent even. But that's just a caricature right? That's playing up our differences in an unhealthy way. But I also think we see this when our culture demonises men to an extreme level. Take, for instance, the, the language around toxic masculinity. Now, sometimes it's seen that the, the sin within men is, is seen as ubiquitous. All men are like this. And there's patterns and so on in male culture that makes it inescapable. And this is the only way it's going to be. And so there becomes this kind of resentment or even hatred towards men. Now, Clementine Ford is a Melbourne-based writer who's written the book Fight Like a Girl. 
on her Twitter. Like, it's quite provocative. She says, all men are scum and must die. Kill all men and then kill them again. Like, that's, that's not helpful. <laughs> now, let me be very clear. Men do sin in many ways. And there's cultures that develop among men that are unhealthy. But masculinity itself is not the problem. Being male is not the problem. It's the sin that deforms us. Al Stewart again says, when men behave badly, it isn't their masculinity that's toxic, it's their humanity. We need men who are not less masculine, but who are properly masculine. And so I think sometimes when we overemphasize our differences, this actually undermines our complementarity. We're supposed to be together, men and women. The world needs men just as it needs women. The world needs both of us working together. And so instead of just fighting each other, we have to find a way to come together. How do we do this? Well, the answer, I think, is in the Bible because we can truly be equal only in Christ. See, the Bible offers us not only God's vision for the, gen- for the sexes and an explanation of how it's happened, why it's gone wrong, but also the clue to how it can be restored. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here is the answer the secret. We find unity, togetherness, complementarity in Christ. We find a shared identity in Christ. You see, we all need Christ, men and women. We're all sinners, men and women alike. No one is righteous, no, not one. But Christ came to save sinners, men and women alike. And if we are willing men and women, to humble ourselves under that and receive his grace, then we can find each other. You see, the gospel demands the kind of humility and courage that is needed to bring unity. The gospel demands the humility to say sorry to God and to others, for men to say sorry to women. And it also offers us the courage to forgive, just as God has forgiven us. And this lays a new foundation for unity, a new equality. In Christ there is neither male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that there's no no difference. Paul's writing affirms gender everywhere. But there is this true and profound equality Because we recognise, when we come to Christ, we recognise that we are created by God, made in his image, both of us, but also now remade in the image of Christ. That starts to change us. As Andrew Wilson puts it, we are humans first, males or females second, and in Christ the divisions that do exist within our shared humanity come crashing down. And I think we start to see this of what this looks like, we have an example of how it works in the person of Jesus and then his people. 
You see, women are remarkably prominent in the life and ministry of Jesus. Many of Jesus' miracles involved women. Think of Peter's mother-in-law in Luke 4 or in Mark 5, he raises a little girl from the dead. In Mark 7, he heals the Syrophoenician woman. His parables and his teaching included women. Think of the, the, the parable of the persistent widow, which is an inspirational example for us about prayerfulness. Women were prominent among his followers as four Marys. Just think of Mary, Jesus' mother. As one writer puts it, if there is a greater responsibility in human history than carrying the Messiah in your womb, I'd like to hear about it. But what's most so significant about it is uh, whenever they're in the story, they're clearly being valued by Jesus. And one of the ways he does this is by teaching them. You see, at this point in time in the culture, in ancient culture, uh, women were not taught by men. There was a common saying among Jewish men at this time, I thank God that I'm not a barbarian or a woman. They weren't valued. The rabbis and the teachers of the law would not even speak to women, let alone teach them. In fact, it was said that many rabbis would rather burn their precious Torah than give it to a woman. And in that context, the example of Jesus is so beautifully different. Just think about him teaching Mary and Martha. Well, think about the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. In fact, it's the longest conversation that Jesus has that's recorded in the Gospels. And note too that when he teaches women, he also shows them the dignity, not just of, of, of uh, protecting them or something, he also shows them the dignity of challenging them, of calling them to repentance and change. And then as Jesus taught women, they begin to teach others. So after her encounter with Jesus, the Samaritan woman goes back to her home and we're told in John 4, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Like she is one of the first evangelists in the New Testament. The most significant of all is the role that women play at the resurrection. You see, the whole message of Christianity hinges on whether or not the resurrection actually happened. Is there proof for it? And the people who offer that proof, the first people to offer it, are women. This is hugely significant because at that time, women couldn't even give uh, testimony in court. They weren't seen as credible witnesses. But here in the Bible, God chooses to reveal himself first to women so that they become the witnesses to the most important event in human history. He entrusts it to women. He entrusts the gospel to women. And so throughout this ministry, Jesus clearly welcomes both men and women because as God, Jesus created both men and women. He made them in his image. And so he treats them of equal value. So I think we find our unity in Christ and the gospel, and then in his example, we start to see how our lives can be shaped in the same way. As God's people, I think we have a call to celebrate gender and to build up gender equality in a number of spheres. I want to talk about three, the home, the church, and then the wider society. First of all, let's start in the home. We all are part of families. That's something that involves us all. 
We're all either husbands or wives or fathers or mothers or brothers or sisters or daughters or sons or aunts or uncles. We all have these family relationships. And in all of them, God calls us to live out our gender, our sameness, our difference, our complementarity in lots of different ways. Take, for instance, marriage. God's vision for marriage is a profound illustration of how we are to relate to each other. Ephesians 5.33, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so you see that it, within a, a godly, functioning, flourishing marriage, there'll be this beautiful cycle of respect and love between the man and the woman. And this ultimately points the world to Jesus. So in that same passage in Ephesians 5, he calls on husbands to lay down their lives for their wife just as Christ lays his life down. And so within the context of marriage, the man and the woman kind of tell the gospel to the world. The man shows how Christ lays down his life and then the woman shows what it's like to trust and honour that. My wife and I do a lot of marriage prep and one of the things that we always try to do is we pray that people will become Christians through that marriage because Marriage is supposed to show us the gospel, show us what Jesus is like. It's a great honour. But, of course, this is not just for married people. Think of Jesus. I mean, he was never a husband or a father, but he lives his life as a son and a brother. He lives out his gender in those ways, in those contexts, those relationships. And so we all are called to do this, invited to show each other what it's like to point to the difference that we have and to the glory that God has in that. And I think particularly we have the opportunity to point to how we are a family in Christ, that we are brothers and sisters, that we are so equal that just like your brother, your sister, you're equal. So here we are called to do that in our relationships. It points us to the work of the church. It's very clear that the example of Jesus shaped the early church in radical ways. Being a woman in the ancient world was, was not a fun experience in lots of ways. Uh, Aristotle in the 300s BC called uh, women uh, defective males. That was kind of the culture of that time. And so then when you bring, you see the contrast within the church, it's extraordinary. Uh, it's thought that over half of the early Christians were women. And you can see why, because they were honoured in a way that they'd never experienced in any other context. So we see women involved from the very beginning, serving alongside men. A woman called Lydia is celebrated as the first Christian convert at Philippi. Nympha hosted a church in her house at Colossae. In Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul commends Euodia and Syntyche, describing them as fellow workers who'd laboured side by side with him in the gospel. And then in Romans 16, Paul makes special mention of several women who he describes as workers in the Lord, Priscilla, Tryphena, Tryphosa. I always wish they had a third sister, Trifecta. But, <laughs> but here we have this beautiful sense of men and women coming together. And yet there's still a sense of difference and complementarity. You see, while there is equal value for men and women in the church, there's also different roles. Only men are given the role of pastor or overseer in the New Testament. And when the Apostle Paul lists the 
qualifications for these roles in Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3. He describes only men filling these roles. And yet, of course, women were still involved in lots of teaching and pastoral ministry. They're called on to teach other women in Titus 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And they also had a role in teaching men as well. In his letters to Timothy, for instance, Paul reminds him of the influence of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, women who had clearly helped pass on their faith to him. And we read of Priscilla helping in the development of Apollos, another of key leader in the early church. And yet when God's people came together, there were still clear guidelines. Women were permitted to prophesy, 1 Corinthians 11, but not to teach, 1 Timothy 2. Now, how all of this works together is very complex and it raises lots of questions. I can't answer them all right now. We'd be here for another hour. I have preached on this previously, however, and you'll be pleased to know that just over there I've got a massive big document that we've been working on as a church that tries to define our position on this more clearly. But in this moment I just want us to see how the New Testament is seeking to affirm God's vision for gender. We are the same but different and we're designed to complement each other. Uh, Andrew Wilson has a helpful insight here. He makes the point that when we hear this kind of stuff around how there's specific roles for men and women in the church, our instinct, because we're in a Western culture, where we often corporatise the church. We think it is very much a top-down hierarchical structure. And so if you say that women can't be pastors in such a context, it sounds like you're saying women can't be CEOs. Like that doesn't make sense to us, right? So he says, actually, what we need to remember is that we're a family. That's what the church is. And in a family, there are often different roles that men and women play. So, for instance, in our family, uh, I say to my kids, if you want to, like, I'll, I'll teach you about history and sport. If you need any other practical knowledge, ask your mother. She, she's the one who knows these things. I'm shocking with my hands, absolutely shocking but my wife is extraordinary. So she has all of the tools in our house. She manages most of our finances. In fact, she does most. <laughs> she does a lot of stuff that I'm just not good at. Interestingly, like when we do family devotions, I'll tend to read the Bible and, and try to teach from it to our kids. But often our kids, if they want to have like a more of a quiet pastoral conversation, they seem to gravitate to my wife. And so as, as Wilson puts it, in a family, everyone knows that both mothers and fathers have vital roles to play in leading together, and at the same time, there's some things that mum does and other things that dad does. I don't know if that helps, but I found it helpful to think of it in those terms, that we're a family together. And so we have the, we're the same in value, but there are different roles that we might play. And yet I also want to say that we have to make sure that this actually happens. See, sometimes in a, in a church like ours, which we call complementarian, so there's only pastors who preach and so on, sometimes I think we can be too cautious. We can be so fixated on what the Bible says women shouldn't do or something in the church context that we neglect all of the stuff that women should do and can do. So, yes, I believe there are limits 
But those limits aren't there to just to constrain us. They're there to release us, to create a space for us to flourish together. And we have to work hard to make sure that that actually happens. Wilson again says, the church is a family and we will only flourish to the extent that we value, honour and esteem both mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. So God's people have a role to play in celebrating God's vision for gender in the church, in the home, and then finally in society. As God's people, we should be active in promoting and seeking laws that honour women and ensure equality. Uh, this is seen in the Bible with the Torah, with God's law. There's laws that protect women from physical violence or from sexual violence, marital desertion, grant them property rights and an inheritance. And so God's people have been instrumental in lobbying for important laws down through history. It was Christians who helped bring in prison reforms that saw men and women segregated in the 4th century. Uh, Christians helped bring in laws that outlawed polygamy, granting property rights to women or prohibiting the burning alive of widows in India in the 1800s or the binding of women's feet in China a century later. So women have been, uh, men, Christians have been active in seeking these laws. And so we should continue to seek laws that enshrine equality. Lobbying for better paying conditions, for instance, in areas of work that are, are dominated by women but undervalued in our society, or increasing allowances for single mums, better conditions around maternity leave or paternity leave. We should commit to building up women in our society to ensure greater equality. Things are better than they were but still not as good as they should be. And so as we finish up, I want to leave us with the thought that we are truly called to celebrate gender. Gender itself is a good thing. We'll talk about this more next week. But we are made in God's image, male and female. And so we should celebrate that. We should celebrate our sameness and our difference, thanking God that we are complementary, that we work alongside each other. And as the church, we should lead the way here. Together, we must treat each other as brothers and sisters of equal standing, joint heirs with Christ, as Peter puts it. We're called to love each other in Christ, finding our identity in him, and then finding our role together with him. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you that you are our creator, that you made us deliberately and carefully and wisely and wonderfully. You made us in your image. You made us male and female. Lord, uh, you made us to work alongside each other in different ways. We bring, each, we bring out each other's sameness and difference and we mourn the ways in which we compete, that there's rivalry and brokenness between the genders. Forgive us for the ways in which we have played a part in that, individually or as a church. We're not doing enough in our society to improve that. Lord, you want to show us something beautiful, and we ask that we as the church might be at the forefront of that.
that we might truly treat each other as brothers and sisters, that we might truly be one in Christ. Thank you that you make it possible, Jesus, for us to be forgiven, to be renewed and restored. So we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.